take your Bibles and open them to Luke chapter 1, that blessed chapter that we've spent so much time in over the last several weeks. Luke chapter 1. The first rule in public speaking and in preaching is do not speak or preach with gum or cough drops in your mouth. The second rule is do not speak or preach sitting down. So we're breaking all the rules this morning. I, I do think perhaps after studying this week, the Lord is allowing me in some way to remove myself from this passage, not to be dependent upon my skill or ability, because we are looking at something today that is eternally important uh, and impactful for your eternity specifically. Uh, we are going to look at Luke chapter 1, verses 31, 32, and 33, we're going to look at a baby that's unlike any other baby that's ever been. A person that's unlike any other person that has ever walked this earth. We get to look today at the very first description in Luke's Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is my prayer, has been my prayer, it is my hope that today I may be able to give you just some small and simple glimpse, maybe just the tip of the iceberg of who Jesus really is. The Jesus of the Bible. And that just maybe today you would either be driven to deeper adoration and praise or just maybe your eyes would be opened and your heart would come alive to who Jesus truly is according to Scripture. I want to start this morning by asking you a question, and I want to ask you to examine that question wholeheartedly and answer it honestly in your mind. It's a simple question, and here it is. Do you think much about Christ? Do you think much about the person of Jesus? Who He is? What He stands for? Do you think about his power? Do you think about his existence, his nature? Do you think about his characteristics or his attributes? Do you ever think about the desires of his heart? Do you spend any time meditating or dwelling upon the person of Jesus? Or do you find yourself thinking more about the benefits that you can get from Christ rather than Christ himself? There's a big difference on where you're focusing your mind, where you're focusing your heart and where you, what you're thinking about. Because many people think about Christ and come to Christ merely to get the benefits of Christ. Not many people come to Christ simply because of who He is. Being struck, awestruck with the person of Jesus. And yet, wouldn't we all agree that the person of Jesus is eternally important for us? But unfortunately, not many people think on the person of Jesus. Many, many people claim to be Christians. They claim to have a relationship with Christ, but they rarely ever dwell or meditate upon Jesus. And too many professing Christians, too many churchgoers, really have no idea who the Jesus of the Bible is. We could sit down and, and ask you to rattle off as much as you know about Jesus. 
not just the facts, but the person of Jesus. And not many people could last very long in talking about Christ. There are, as many of us know, a lot of misconceptions about who Jesus is. We know some of the most popular ones. Uh, a lot of people think falsely that he's just a good teacher. The secular world thinks that he's simply just a good man. People in the Bible times, even people today, think that he's insane. They would call him demon-possessed in Scripture. Some people, uh, looking at the misconceptions of Christ, some people, Oprah Winfrey would fall into this category, would say that Jesus is one of many ways to God, not the only way to God. Some would claim and have claimed that Jesus is closed-minded. They claim that He's fictional. An old heretical teaching in the early church claimed that He wasn't God. It's called Arianism. That He wasn't always God or He wasn't always man. Some religions today look at Jesus and say that He never claimed to be God. Some people in the church look at Jesus and say He's only about love. He's not ever about justice. He's not ever about wrath. He's not about any of those things. He's only about love and forgiveness. And the list can go on and on and on and on about misconceptions, false beliefs concerning who Jesus really is. We're not surprised by that, are we? We know that this world is rampant with misunderstandings of Jesus. But isn't that the tragedy of tragedies? That people do not know who Jesus is. And it's the tragedy of tragedies because if you get Jesus wrong, you get everything else wrong. If you get Jesus wrong, you get your life wrong, you get your faith wrong, your, your Christian religion is wrong. If you get Jesus wrong, you get your eternity wrong. And perhaps even the greater tragedy among tragedies is that there are a plethora of church attenders who get Jesus wrong. People who come to church faithfully, been in church for years, have no idea who Jesus really is. Many, many people in the church form a mental idea of who Jesus is that is totally foreign to the Jesus of Scripture. Many churches worship a Jesus that is not found in the Bible. Too many, too many people have fashioned their own God and their own Savior, and they have never taken the time themselves to open the pages of Scripture and find out who the Jesus of the Bible really is. And they will be those people that in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, stands before him, and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? And Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you and you never knew me. What a tragedy. That people think they're saved. And really have no clue who Christ is. Well, today we are going to look at Christ. We're going to look at what the scriptures have to say about this coming Jesus. And we will see his character we're going to see his nature, his existence. We're going to see his future. We're going to see much more about this person, this child that's going to be born called Jesus. And we start there in verse 31, which is really a startling message for Mary. She's hearing uh, from Gabriel 
what kind of baby that she's going to have. And Gabriel's telling her he's not going to be like any other baby that's ever been born or ever will be born. He's not like the baby uh, John the Baptist that I talked about earlier. He's not like any of those babies. He is the long-awaited Messiah. That's who you're going to give birth to. The long-promised Deliverer. And so as we walk through these three verses this morning, we're going to look at three things concerning Christ that Gabriel brings out. And again, I hope we see just a, a glimpse of the majesty of our Savior. And I hope that we truly behold Him today in our hearts and in our minds. And that for some of you, maybe for the first time, you'll begin to see this Jesus and the glory of this Jesus. And listen to this. When you encounter this Jesus, truly encounter this Jesus, you will walk away changed and affected forever. You can have people in the Scriptures like the rich young ruler and other people who do encounter Christ and walk away unchanged, but when you truly encounter this Jesus, your life is totally different. This Jesus is an impactful Jesus. So let's look here in Luke chapter 1 and let's back up to verse 28. The angel Gabriel has been sent to Mary. In verse 28, he comes to her and says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The first thing we want to look at in regards to our Lord this morning from this passage is his entry into the world. Start off looking at his entry into the world. And this is important because this answers the question for us. This answers how our Lord humbled himself to become one of us for us. This shows us how. He became human and yet also maintained His deity. And it also shows us how determined our Lord was to come on our behalf. This, this verse here, this passage, deserves great attention. It deserves much examination and much, much study. And so concerning our Lord's entry into the world, we want to examine three things about His coming into creation. First, Jesus, and it must be stated, Jesus is pre-existent. Anytime you talk about the Lord coming into the earth, taking on flesh, being born of a virgin, you have to establish that He has always existed. That's John chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3, what we read this morning, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, verse 3. He was in the beginning with God, right? Jesus has eternally existed. He's eternal in His being. An eternal person. So some would say, back to what I 
slightly referenced earlier in church history, a heretical teaching in church history called Arianism would say that this birth was the beginning of the existence of Christ. Some would say this was the origin of the, of the nature and person of Christ. But that's simply not true. That's incorrect. Scripture teaches that He's always existed. That our Lord has no beginning, has no origin. He is eternal in His person. And so rather we would say, not that this is His beginning, this is simply His entry into creation. It may be the beginning of His time living in creation, but it's not the beginning of His existence. You look at other passages of Scripture. John chapter 17, verse 5. Jesus is praying to the Father there and He says, Father, glorify Me in Your own presence with the glory I had with You before the world existed. In that same prayer, in verse 24, Jesus talks about the love that Him and the Father shared before the world existed. And so again, this may be the beginning of His dwelling in creation, but this is not the beginning of of His existence. Our Lord is an eternal being. This means a few things for us. This means that Jesus greatly, greatly humbled Himself for you. Philippians chapter 2, what does Paul say about Christ? Being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death. Being found as a human being, He humbled Himself pre-existent, the eternal, the always existing Christ dwelt in unapproachable light, dwelt in extreme beautiful glory, dwelt in the throne room of heaven itself, and yet stepped out of that glory to be a baby born for us. Jesus humbled Himself greatly for us. It also means that Jesus came at His perfect timing. He came on His own timing. Galatians 4.4 4, When the fullness of time had come, what then God sent forth His Son. Only when God had desired and only when the time was perfect, He came under the sovereignty of God. So this pre-existent Jesus has always dwelt, has always existed. He humbled Himself to be a baby, be born in the likeness of flesh for us, and He came under His own sovereignty. And I have to add here, there is great mystery concerning this event. This is the incarnation of the Lord, and we do not understand all the details of it. This is the divine nature of God uniting with the nature of man, yet becoming one. And we don't know exactly how all that happens. It's a great mystery to us that a pre-existent person can enter into a womb. So we can't describe all the details, all the ins and outs of it, because Scripture doesn't tell us. But one thing is for sure, this birth is not the beginning of our Lord. He has always existed. An eternal Lord. So, concerning the entry of our Lord into this world, He was preexistent. The second thing we want to look at in this verse 31 is that He's conceived in the womb of a virgin. Conceived in the womb of a virgin. This is... An extremely important truth about Jesus. That He is not born of man. He's born of a virgin. This has many implications to it. The first one is this is important. This being born of a virgin is important to fulfill prophecy. 
and all the theological implications of fulfilling this prophecy. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, we know the prophecy that we're talking about concerning Jesus being born of a virgin. Actually, if you cross-reference that verse with Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, where Gabriel's actually giving the vision and the message to Joseph, you remember because Joseph doubted why Mary was pregnant, Gabriel appears to Joseph and says, trust what Mary's saying, uh, she's, she's having a child unlike any other child. In that message, Gabriel applies this prophecy to Jesus. And the prophecy is that the Lord Himself will give you a sign. And behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And Gabriel says, that's Jesus. That's this child. That's what's happening here. And so this virgin birth is important to fulfill the prophecy of Scripture. Now, we would still, like Mary in verse 34, have the question, how is this possible? And we would still get the same answer that Mary got in verse 35. The Holy Spirit's going to come over you and the power of the Most High is going to overshadow you. God's going to create this person in your womb. But this is going to be a holy child. A child that God has sent. A child that fulfills Scripture. It's also important that Jesus is conceived in the womb of a virgin and born of a virgin. It's also important because it's an important truth for the person and deity of Jesus. A birth like this underscores His divinity, doesn't it? He wasn't a man who was eventually becoming God. Some people believe that. That Jesus was just a man and at His baptism then He became God. No, that's not what the Scriptures teach us. He's not a man who became God. He is God from the beginning. God from the womb. This child will be holy, Gabriel says. He'll be called the Son of the Most High as a result of His virgin birth. He's always been God. His virgin birth underscores His divinity. It also tells us about our Lord's humanity and the necessity for Him to be born in such a way as this to be human. Because He was indeed human, wasn't He? When Scripture says He became like one of us, it means that in the fullest sense He became like one of us. Yet His humanity is not precisely like ours, is it? We're born and exist in original sin because we're born of sinful man. But that's not the case for Christ. He does not have original sin because He's not born of man whom passes on sin. This means Christ is sinless. And so He's very much human, but He's very much sinless. That's what the virgin birth means. Entered this world just like you and I, but without sin. Finally, this virgin birth, it's important to fulfill prophecy. It's important for the truth of His person and His deity. It tells us about Him being human. But it's also important so that He could be the qualified substitute. The adequate substitute for us. He had to be born as a man to be the correct substitute for our sins. Right. That's because man had sinned. Man is responsible for sin. Man needed to pay the penalty for sin. But man could not atone for sin. None of us could be the spotless sacrifice. All of us are tainted. All of us are corrupted by sin. None of us 
could atone for our sin, our own sin, much more the sin of the world. Therefore, God became a man for us to be the substitute on behalf of man, the sacrifice on behalf of man. And so the virgin birth upholds the deity of Christ so that when He would go to the cross, He'd be strong enough to endure the cross, strong enough to take on the sin of the world, and He would be accurate enough to complete His work that the full wrath of God would be satisfied for all who come to Him once and for all. The virgin birth is also important so that He could be the human human substitute and apply His work on the cross to all of humanity. Since redemption is God's work from beginning to end, according to Albert Moeller, since redemption is God's work from beginning to end, this is an extremely important doctrine, the virgin birth. Because those who usually deny that Jesus was born of a virgin usually deny that Jesus is the Son of God and therefore cannot maintain that His work on the cross was enough. That is why the virgin birth is a watershed doctrine for us. A foundational belief for true and right Christian understanding. Because in it we find that our Lord fulfilled all that had been promised about Him. That He maintained His divinity, yet also became a man and became that perfect, adequate, qualified sacrifice and substitute for us. So that every sin of yours could be applied directly to Jesus and taken care of for eternity. Say, or the third thing here that we want to highlight from this passage of Him coming into the world, verse 31, is that He came for a purpose. Jesus wasn't just born into creation for the fun of it, right? He wasn't just curious about how the human birth system worked. He came for a mission, for a specific mission and purpose. And we're reminded of that mission in the name that's given to Him in verse 31. You shall call His name Jesus. The meaning of His name is actually explained in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, as Gabriel speaks to Joseph. He says, You shall call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. That's the meaning of the name Jesus. It's a common Hebrew name, Yeshua, and it actually means Yahweh saves. That's His whole purpose in coming to earth. His saving work on the cross. Everything is built around that. He humbled Himself. He came under His perfect timing. He left His pre-existent glory. He left His holy dwelling place in heaven. He entered into the womb of a virgin, was born of a virgin, all for the purpose of being the right and accurate substitute to save you. Save me. This baby that we read of here, this baby that's being described to Mary by Gabriel, this baby is the pre-existent, divinely conceived, sinless, Scripture-fulfilling Messiah who humbled Himself into humanity for a clear and specific purpose. I want you to see the great lengths that the Lord went to save you. Are you bored yet with Christ? Lest you become dull, remember the significance of His stepping into humanity for your sin. Remember 
how wretched your sinfulness is before God and that He would still take your place on the cross. Remember that this isn't just some baby that we read about. This is the eternal Christ come for you. So we've looked at His entry into the world. Let's move on to verse 32. In verse 32, we see His equality with the Father described by Gabriel. His equality with the Father. Gabriel first describes Him in verse 32 as great. And that's not a superficial title or a superficial description. And it's different from the greatness that's prescribed to John the Baptist in verse 15. If you look in verse 15, John's greatness is qualified. He'll be great before the Lord. Yet in verse 32, Jesus' greatness is unqualified and it's absolute. He's purely great. He's independent of needing to be great before anybody. He is the very essence of greatness. He's great in His nature. And in the Old Testament, greatness without a qualifier such as this is an attribute that's given to God alone. You do not find someone in the Old Testament described as great without a qualifier unless it is God. You see it in Psalm 86.10. You see it in Psalm chapter 135. Verse 5, you see it in Psalm 145, verse 3. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. And this greatness, unqualified, pure greatness, is applied to this baby that's going to be born to you, Mary. He's going to be great. The very definition of greatness. He'll be great before all. Be great in the purest of sense. And there is no one and there is no thing that can qualify His greatness. He'll be great in stature. Great in strength. He'll be great in majesty. He'll be great in holiness. And on down the line, there is no end to His greatness. He brings a great salvation. He's shown Himself a greater prophet than Moses. He is the great high priest. And He is the greater King of Israel than any other king that's ever been king. And for us, having the full New Testament on this side of the cross, we witness His greatness, don't we? We see His greatness in what? The washing of the disciples' feet. We see His greatness in having compassion on the sick and healing them. We see His greatness in reaching out to sinners and outcasts and having dinner with them when the rest of the world says, you're, you're crazy. We see His greatness when He defends and proclaims the truth of God unequivocally. We see His greatness when He's hanging on the cross as every drop of blood runs down and drips to the soil. His greatness is unmatched. And for us, church, we belong to this Lord, this great Lord, whose greatness is unmatched and whose greatness is uncontended who is high above any who would come before Him and any who would ever dare challenge Him. That is our Lord. We don't belong to some puny God, do we? We belong to the great Jesus Christ. No one can compare to Him. 
Your spouse can't compare to Him. Your boss can't compare to Him. Not your worst enemy can compare to Him. The church's persecutors can't compare to Him. The government can't compare to Him. No one is as great as Jesus. And you and I have the eternal blessing of having a relationship with this Lord. Praying to this Lord. Being able to open the pages of Scripture and know the heart of this Lord. There is no one greater than the one who calls us child, friend, and servant. But greatness isn't the only thing that Gabriel mentions about Him in verse 32. He says that He will also be called the Son of the Most High. That's a very specific title and description given to Jesus. The term and title Most High, it is a Hebrew title pronounced El Elyon, and it's a title given to God alone. Nobody else gets that title. And it signifies God's supremacy and God's majesty over everything. And for us, in this passage, we must note that to be the son of someone is to be of the same essence as that someone. Is to be equal with that someone. Gabriel makes no mistake in what he's saying here. This child, Mary, that you're going to give birth to, this child is of the same essence of the Most High God. He's equal to Him. Had Luke's readers ever doubted or had they never heard that Jesus was the Son of God, then here they would be totally amazed at what Luke reports the angel saying. Totally perplexed. Totally thrilled and excited in their hearts. Because this is no mere, mere man that's going to be born. This is no mere man that's going to walk the face of this earth. This is a different man altogether. He is of the same essence, the same being as the Most High God. Even the demons know this. Mark chapter 5, verse 7, a demon speaking to Jesus says, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Even Satan in his perfect theology concerning God knows Jesus is of the same essence as the Most High God. So we can conclude from what Gabriel is saying here that Jesus is equal to the Father and He's equal to Him in every way possible. But I want to highlight just three general areas that we can glean from the title of the Most High God that Jesus would be of the same uh, essence uh, to this Most High God. The first one is He's same in nature to the Most High God. In His very being, He's equal to the Father of the same nature as God the Father. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, we also read this Scripture this morning, says that He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. That's why John would refer to Him as the Word in John chapter 1. Because He's the full revelation of God. The complete self-disclosure. The complete self-expression of God. That's why Jesus would say, when you look at Me, you've seen the Father. And that's why Jesus can say in John 10.30, I and the Father, we are one. This child 
Our Lord Jesus, the one that we worship, He is eternal. He is independent. He is perfect. He is holy. He is sovereign. He is in control of all things. He has absolute supreme authority over the universe and on down the list of all of God's attributes. All that we would ascribe to God the Father, we must and should ascribe to Jesus. He's not like the other gods of the pagan world. He's not like the gods of the current world religions. He's not like the Greek mythical gods. He's not like Hercules. He's not like any man who's ever existed. He is deserving of full honor. Deserving of full reverence. Deserving of full worship, devotion, obedience. Deserving of full faith. Unless you miss the point here, believer, today you repent of all the times that you flippantly treated this Jesus. Because this Jesus is deserving of the utmost respect and reverence and honor. This is the Son of the Most High. That's who you're going to give birth to, Mary. Since He's of the same nature as the Father, He's also sharing in the same glory as the Father. And that's a remarkable statement because of what we see God say in Isaiah 42, verse 8. God Himself says, I am the Lord, that is My name. My glory I give to no other. I share with no one. Yet Jesus, all throughout Scripture, can be said of sharing the glory of the Father. John chapter 1, verse 14. We have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. That's what John reports about Him. Again, John 17.5, Jesus can pray, Father, glorify Me in Your own presence with the glory I had with You before the world existed. Matthew chapter 17, verses 1-8, through 8, Peter, James, and John taken up on the mount, mountain where they see Jesus transfigured and they actually behold the transformative glory of Christ. The same glory of God. And so this child to be born, this Savior that would hang on the cross, He is the all-glorious God of the universe. That's who we belong to. He's reigning in supreme, unmatched, blinding glory. This is the one whom the angels will cry out, Holy, holy, holy. This is the one who sits radiantly on the throne of heaven at all times. In fact, in John chapter 12, verse 41, John is interpreting um, Isaiah's vision in Isaiah chapter 6 of the glory of God. We know Isaiah 6, where he's, he sees God in His throne room and he says, Woe is me, uh, I'm a man of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King. My eyes have seen the glory of the Lord. John, in chapter 12, verse 41, actually says that Isaiah sees the glory of Jesus in that passage. It's because they share the same glory. Share the same nature. And so this is the same Jesus in the future who will one day light the skies of heaven, not with the created sun, but with His radiant and beautiful glory. And also, this glorious Jesus that we read about that's going to be born to you, Mary, this is the Jesus who will look at you and I and say, 
I lay down my life for my sheep. I am worthy of all glory in all the universe and all creation. All of it belongs to me. I am the only one worthy of the glory of heaven. And yet I will lay down my life for my sheep. I will give myself to redeem the sinner. I will come not for the, those who are righteous, but for those who break the law. I'll be the physician, not for the healthy, but for the sick. The outcast, the unwanted. That's who I'm coming from. For this is, this is the same Jesus that shed His blood for us on the cross out of His love for us. This is the same Jesus that secures a place in heaven for us to dwell with Him for eternity. The, the same Jesus who entered into creation in humility to be our perfect substitute. This baby who possesses all this glory, the glory of the most supreme, majestic, high God, and yet He would come and lay down His life for us. He also shares the same power as God. If He has the same nature the same glory of the Most High, then He has eternal power like the Most High. He's supreme in power. And that's seen all over Scripture again. And His healing of the blind people, of crippled people, people plagued with leprosy, His power seen in turning water into wine, casting out demons, raising the dead like Lazarus, and ultimately raising Himself from the dead, right? His eternal power is on display. Our Lord Jesus... This baby that's going to be born to you, Mary, has the full power of God Almighty. In all things, us, the enemy, everything in creation, all things are subjected to His power. Nothing is outside of His control. He even, this baby even, upholds the universe by the word of His power. Hebrews 1.3 He is the powerful sustainer of all things. Even as they are nailing Him to the cross, He sustains their every breath. There is no one more powerful than the one that's going to be born to you, Mary. No, more, no one more powerful than this Jesus. He is the Son of the Most High. And yet out of love, He'll enter into creation. And although all-powerful, He'll submit Himself to earthly parents. And He'll let people nail Him to the cross. And He'll let the tomb be sealed over His body. All for you. All for me. If you weren't moved by Jesus before this passage, I hope you're moved by Him now. Because this is a mighty Savior who wasn't backed down and beaten into the cross, but who submitted Himself to the cross to save you. And so if the virgin birth is how Jesus was able to be our adequate substitute, then this describes who our substitute is, that He is God Himself. Son of the Most High. With the full nature, with all the glory, and all the power of God. This Jesus, this Jesus is better than any Jesus you'll ever fashion in your mind. This Jesus is better than any Jesus you could ever make up in your imagination. This Jesus is life changing. This Jesus is the Jesus of Scripture. This Jesus means everything to us. He's not just a good teacher. He's more than just a good man. He's not insane. He's not demon-possessed. He's not one of many ways to God. He's not fictional. He is the Son of the Most High, sent to be the Savior of the world. 
The third thing we want to look at real quick from this passage is the rest of verse 32 and verse 33. So we've looked at his entry into the world. We've looked at his equality with the Father. Now we look at his eternal reign as king. And so Gabriel continues this inspiring, awesome message to Mary. And he doesn't stop with just that he's equal to the Father. He continues on and says, this is the long-awaited Messiah of the world. The promised Deliverer. Make no mistake about who you're going to give birth to. It is the Anointed One of God. He is the Messiah. And he points to three things in the end of verse 32 and verse 33 there that make it clear that He's the Messiah. He says that He'll be given the throne of David. He'll reign over the house of Jacob, Israel, forever. And of His kingdom there will be no end. And these three things point to not only His Messiahship, but also His kingship. But let's take them in turn here real quick. Looking at His Messiahship, there is no mistake that this baby, based off of Gabriel's description, will fulfill the Messianic covenant of David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. No doubt. We're in that chapter of 2 Samuel 7. God promises to David, one, that I'm going to raise up one who's going to sit on your throne forever and who will be a son to me. That's verse 14. That's fulfilled here in Jesus. Two, I'm going to establish that person's throne and his kingdom forever. That's verses 13 and 16 of 2 Samuel 7. And then finally, he's going to reign on that kingdom forever. Nobody's going to take him off the throne. He'll be there eternally. That's the Messiah. That's who we've been waiting for. That's the one coming to deliver Israel, deliver the world, and you get to give birth to him, Mary. That's this baby. It'll be unlike any other baby that's ever been born. Because these things haven't been fulfilled in anybody else. They haven't been fulfilled in any of uh, the other descendants of David. They've all died. But here's one that's going to be born that will live forever. And it only makes sense that he'll sit on that throne for as long as he lives. Forever. For eternity. So this could be fulfilled in no one else but Jesus. But also, these three statements point to the kingship of Jesus. It also informs Mary that the baby you're going to have is a royal baby. And not like the earthly royalty of earthly kings, He has divine royalty. There will never be an end to this child's kingdom. There will never be a day this child will be taken off of His throne. This child will be the true and everlasting King of Israel. The long-awaited King of the universe. This is partially true now. Jesus' reign as King. It's, it's partially true now in our lives spiritually as believers. As He reigns as King over our individual lives. And it's also true as He reigns in heaven now as King. The current King of heaven. And so that in every true believer's life. Jesus sits on the throne of their life as the King of their life. But this will also be fulfilled and ultimately be completely fulfilled in His millennial kingdom. One day when Christ returns to the earth, binds up Satan and everything that is evil, and reigns on the earth for a thousand years, then lets Satan go again only to defeat him and his army once and for all and reign eternally in His kingdom. 
So make no mistake, He's King now of heaven, but one day, He will be the eternal King. The undisputed King. The One who's conquered over every army against Him. And of that kingdom, there will be no end and no question. He is the rightful King. Don't wait till that day to meet Jesus. Meet Him now. Because when that day comes, everything will already be set. The citizens of His kingdom and His enemy will already be set. So this morning, just out of looking at these few verses, I, I wanted you to see the high and lofty view of Jesus that the angel paints for Mary. That He is pre-existent, entering into creation via a womb of a virgin for the clear purpose of being the adequate substitute for humanity. That He is the great Son of the Most High, equal to the Father in nature, in glory, and in power, and in every other way, deserving the appropriate praise, worship, devotion of such a being as God the Most High. And that He is the long-awaited, ancient of days, promised Deliverer, anointed One of God, the Messiah, who God has sent into the world, who will one day forever reign over all things. And these... High depictions of Jesus. Even before He's born, they confront us with an overwhelming reality, don't they? That Jesus is unlike any other who has ever tread the sands of creation. He is God in the flesh. And that means we don't treat Him like we do anybody else. That means He's worthy of of our full devotion, surrendering our entire lives to Him. He doesn't get the same attention as our spouse gets. He doesn't get the same attention as our best friend gets. He deserves and is worthy of so much more. It is this God that we read about, this child that we read about, that has come for you and I, that has come for us, Sinners who are offensive to His very nature and rebellious to all of His ways. And yet, while we're still sinners, right? While we're still undesirable wretches, Jesus entered into creation. Left His glory. Stepped out of heaven. Entered into the womb of a virgin. Came for us. That is the great and awesome God of the universe with the power and glory unimagined, with goodness and mercy beyond measure, with righteousness and holiness and all of His being. And that is the God who died on the cross for us, that He might make a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. That He might secure for Himself a people who belong to Him. So all the things we read about there in verses 31, 32, and 33 all these descriptions of Jesus given by Gabriel, they're all built around His saving work. The whole reason that He came into the world. That means one thing for us. That means how you respond to this child determines your eternity. Let me be a little more specific for you. How you respond to this child today, right now, determines your eternity. This is no mere baby. This isn't an ordinary child. This child isn't even on the same level as John the Baptist, the greatest man who's ever lived. This child is the Son of the Most High God. 
And if that doesn't well up within your heart, a devotion, a renewal, a refreshment to serve Him in every minute detail of your life, you've got serious problems. So believer, this morning, maybe you do need to repent. Maybe for you today is the day of repentance because you have so carelessly approached Jesus. Maybe because you've been so much more concerned about yourself and your own agenda and your own preferences over Jesus. You've spent more time in your own prideful heart than you have serving Christ and devoting yourself to Christ and meeting with Christ. Maybe today you need to repent and lay aside everything. Lay aside your career. Lay aside your fame. Lay aside your reputation. All for the sake of following this Jesus. Maybe you're an unbeliever this morning. And you have fashioned for years your own depiction of who you think God is. And maybe today you've been confronted for the first time with who Scripture says Jesus is. And He's blown your mind. Greater than you could imagine. And He's piercing your heart right here this morning. For you, maybe today is the day of salvation. Because this Christ came Not to condemn the world. That will come. But He came to set the captives free. To bind up the brokenhearted. To deliver the oppressed. To give salvation to the sinner. And this almighty, all-glorious Jesus extends to you grace unlike anybody else that today you can be saved. That's why we're all here, right? Haven't we all, us believers, haven't we realized in our hearts the magnitude of who Jesus is and that He would dare save a wretch like me? Therefore, my life is devoted to Him. I'll be faithful to everything He calls me to be faithful to. I'll meet every chance I get to worship Him and lift His name on high. I'll proclaim Him to the ends of the earth. Be renewed in your devotion. This baby who's going to be born He's unlike any other baby who's ever been.